This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Let's pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do take a seat, and if you would, as David said, uh, flip over or keep open 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, because that's the text we're looking at today. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians uh, over the course of the year, and uh, we're returning uh, to it after a week away. Uh, We come to this passage with some possibly strange parts to it, but let's have a look and see what God is saying to us in it. But I want to begin by observing that the Christian journey, though it has many joys, is not easy. It's not an easy thing to be a Christian. What perhaps makes it most difficult is that God is invisible. It's the ultimate image problem, you might say. God calls us to leave behind our attachment to the things of this world with all the promises of pleasure and fulfilment and security, and to trust him when he says that it will be worth it in the end. But those alternatives don't magically disappear from view. We're still surrounded by those more tangible options, trying to call us away from our focus on Jesus Christ, telling ourselves that we need to give ourselves to success or possessions or relationships or work more than we need Christ. It's possible to become dissatisfied with your lot and to find yourself praying prayers like prayers that I've heard people pray and that I've wanted to pray myself. God, I've done so much for you. Why haven't you fixed up my life? Why isn't life more easy? Why haven't I been more handsomely rewarded? Now, I know a number of people who started out on the Christian journey but then opted out when an apparently more solid option appears. But more often, I think what we do is we try for a compromise. We try to have a foot in both camps, to worship the true God, or at least give lip service to his worship, but also to keep our hearts for the worship of the things that aren't him. Now, for the Corinthian Christians of the first century AD, the choice and the challenge was the same. They'd left behind the paganism that surrounded them everywhere. Now, Corinth was a city filled with temples to all kinds of deities and gods. And worship of these gods, well, it came with the attractive promises of personal pleasure and fulfillment. They promised financial success, business success, fame and fortune, sex and feasting. You could go to the temple and use the temple prostitutes and indulge in the drunken revelry that was part of the process. It was all part of life on their version of what I'm calling planet porn. And so the Corinthians were asking the same questions that we ask today. Am I missing out on real life by following God? Following God seems like I've checked into the nursing home early. Couldn't I have a little bit of both? After all, I'm freely forgiven in Jesus Christ, aren't I? And Surely it's important that I don't lose my pagan friends and business contacts and my place in the pagan world. Well, Paul says to them in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians what he would surely say to us, and it's this. He says, God is faithful, so follow him. God is faithful, so follow him. And he says, God is faithful, 
So be faithful to him. God is faithful, so follow him. And God is faithful, so be faithful to him. And to help the Corinthians and to help us to see this more clearly, Paul takes us on a journey back to the past, to the story of the Exodus in uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 10. Now, if you don't know the story of the Exodus, you can get a rough idea, only a rough idea, from the Disney cartoon, Prince of Egypt. Rough idea, I, I, I emphasis, and even rougher idea if you go to Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments. The Bible would be better, but... That's the story. It's the story of another people led on a journey by God. You remember how it goes. Moses leads the people out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea and into the desert to worship God near Mount Sinai and in the end finally to find life in the promised land in Canaan. And Paul says, look, remember those people. Don't forget those spiritual ancestors of yours. Didn't they hear the same message as you? Didn't they hear the call of God? Didn't they follow him to redemption? See, like you, you were baptised. You got water put on you. And they, they went through water as well. They went through the Red Sea. And they ate and they drank. Just as you eat and drink together, they ate and drank. They drank from Jesus Christ, just like you Christians do now. They didn't know it was Christ. They couldn't name him as Christ. But they had the spiritual presence of Jesus Christ with them then. They'd been released from slavery and were now on the way between Egypt and the Promised Land. But the journey hadn't finished. The desert was hot, the journey was long, and the future seemed out of reach. And so the story goes that the people of Israel got fed up to the back teeth of wandering around in the, in the desert, and they fell into four particular sins. First of all, as Paul tells us in verse 7, they worshipped idols. They worshipped idols. They got so sick of waiting for Moses to come down out of Mount Sinai and tell them stuff that they started worshipping idols. They indulged together in sexual immorality. That's verse 8. And then they tested the Lord in verse 9. And then, oh my goodness, did they whinge. They were, they were class A moaners. And that's verse 10. This is all recorded for us in the book, books of Exodus and Numbers, this is the boiled down version. You might remember in particular one of these episodes, the episode of the golden calf. While Moses is on the mountain, his brother Aaron makes for the people, the people are getting bored and frustrated, they can't see God. He makes for them a golden calf and they bow down and worship the golden calf and carry on uh, like pork chops all around the, uh, the golden calf. The point is, that on the way between Egypt and the Promised Land, the people of God gave into the temptation to worship idols and to indulge in the drunken festivities that went along with that. These temptations came because they doubted the true God's power and they doubted the true God's goodness. Was God really able to save them? Was he really able to save them? Or were they just going to perish in the desert? Did God really care at all about them? Or is he just capricious and mean? So Paul says in verse 6 that their story was an example for us of what not to do as we journey homewards to the kingdom of heaven. And he makes this even clearer in verse 11, as you'll see there. Those old stories are written for us, he says, on whom the end of the ages have come. In other words, we have received the fulfillment of all of those people, all of those people in the, in the past have dreamed of in knowing Jesus Christ in full colour as we do. Those old folks, though they didn't know it, 
was serving as an example for this bunch of, of Gentiles and for this bunch of Gentiles here who are now setting out on a similar journey following the Lord God into the wilderness of life and attempted, just as they were, to turn back. And what's the message? Don't worship idols. Don't engage in sexual, sexual immorality. Don't put God to the test. Don't become a moaner. Those things don't work with following Christ. They just don't go together with, the, with, with following Christ, with sharing in him. This was certainly really tough for the Corinthians because they were surrounded by pagan worship. It was everywhere they went. They just had to walk out the front door. And paganism was in, in the water of Corinth, in the air of it. They lived in an economic and social system that was driven by the pagan worship of idols and the orgiastic feasts that went with them. And looking at that revelry, it would be so easy to become dissatisfied with Jesus Christ. No doubt, they had people mocking, mocking them for being so old-fashioned and puritanical. No doubt, they lost business and lost friends over it. We shouldn't underestimate how similar life as a Christian in our world is. Now, maybe you haven't noticed that there's a tension between the two, but there is. Life in Sydney is rapidly filling with idols that ask for your worship. Of course, there's literally idols. As our city becomes more multicultural and as we seek for the wisdom of the East because Western godless capitalism is so empty, we do find our city filling up with temples and shrines. And Christians must flee the worship of such idols. They are not the true God. And worshipping them has no place alongside worship of the true God. But an idol is anything you give your heart to. Mostly for Australians, for most of us. Success, sport, pleasure, fame, cash, property, work and love. Are our, are our idols. What else do we live for but these things? What are our dreams made of? What fills our waking hours? Do we not sacrifice ourselves for these things, burn ourselves out in the pursuit of these things? Are these things not all around us, trying to persuade us to love them, calling to our hearts a siren song? And it's no accident that Paul links sexual immorality to idol worship because our idols appeal to us as the sensual creatures we are. They tell us that what you really want can be met by meeting your physical need for pleasure. And so like the Corinthians and like the Israelites of olden times, you and I are being tested or tempted. And Paul says to us, you're going to be tempted and tested by living in this world, so don't be complacent. There's no room for arrogance here. If you think you are standing, watch out that you do not fall. But you might be saying, look, look, Paul, you don't understand how deeply I'm longing for that life. You don't understand the pull of it, the tug of it. You don't understand what it's like to watch everyone else brag on Instagram about how wonderful life is with their stuff. You don't understand how difficult it is to be different and separate. You don't understand how lonely and isolated I feel. You don't know how powerless I feel. And that's what the Corinthians were no doubt saying as well. 
Well, Paul's got two things to say to both groups, to the Corinthians and to the Sydney-siders of the 21st century. The first is this. In all this mess, know that God is faithful. In all this mess, know that God is faithful. And secondly, if you are in Christ, you belong to him. So be faithful to him. Know that God is faithful, and if you are in Christ, know that you belong to him and be faithful to him. On the Christian journey, temptation and testing will come to you. And that can be a frightening prospect because you know your own weakness. You know what you're like when you're tired or upset or afraid or resentful. And Paul says, when the testing comes, know this promise of God. Know that he will provide a way out. I think this is profoundly important, life-changing stuff. God does not abandon us in the desert. He didn't abandon the people of Israel in the desert, and he will not abandon you. Our temptations, however powerful they seem, they can loom before us like, a, like an unpassable wall, an unclimbable barrier. But these temptations are not unique. And though they seem insurmountable, they are not. God will provide a way out. I don't know how you are being tested at the moment in your faith. I don't underestimate the power of emotions like anger, loneliness, fear, anxiety and resentment in your life. I know what power they have over me and the way they make me seem to do things and think things and feel things that I don't want to. I don't underestimate the power of an addiction to control you. But what Paul isn't, this is very important, is he's not a football coach telling us that if we're man enough or woman enough, we'll see it off if only we try harder. Notice how he doesn't do that. He doesn't turn around to the Corinthians and say, come on, toughen up, unleash the giant within. No, instead, Paul says what? He says, God is faithful. God is faithful. If I'm honest, a lot of sin in my life comes because I don't really believe that God has my best interests in heart. at heart. I don't really... I don't really trust that he is faithful. And I don't cling to him as the one solid thing in my life. If you are in the throes of temptation then, the spiritual antidote is to believe in your heart that God is faithful. Believe in your heart, not just in your mind. You have to transfer that belief down your body into your, into your heart. You have to ingest it. It has to become part of who you are. You have to allow God to teach not just your intellect, but your heart that he is not weak or stingy, but utterly trustworthy and incredibly generous. The habits and the rhythms of the Christian life help us here. Daily prayer. You can sign up to my daily devotions if that's something you'd like to start, by the way. Reading the Bible. Meeting together with others. These are a school for our wayward and temptable hearts. But if you're not in the throes of temptation, I want to ask you, is it because you are complacent? 
Is it because you've already given in and compromised? Is it because you've just let the two or three objects of your love overwhelm you? Is it because you've you've become comfortable with a mixed allegiance? But if we are looking enviously on the feasting of the pagan world, remember that God has also given us a meal to share. He's also called us to a banquet, a feast. This is what he says in verses 14 through to 22. He says, Remember that Christians share in a meal together that has a cup of wine and a loaf of bread. And you know, it's not very much wine and it's not very much bread. And compared to what you're getting down at the local temple, you know, you don't leave with your belt kind of absolutely groaning with how much you've been, you've been satisfied. You don't, you don't leave with a, with a, with a promise of a hangover for the next morning. But you get something far deeper from that meal. When you eat that meal, you are sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. And you are sharing with those who share in it as well. We're not making a sacrifice to a God when we share in that meal. We are sharing in a sacrifice that he has made for us. That table that we come to as Christians show that we, shows that we belong to one another in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing feast. It's an amazing feast. Because as we eat it, it shows us the kindness and the mercy and the love of God for us. It brings us together as one body. And when you and I share that meal, as we will next week, we will be enacting a spiritual reality that is more solid than the stones of this building. We will be tasting divinity on our tongues. We will be having a visible connection with an invisible and eternal truth. And so here's the thing. How could you come to that table, to that feast, and share in the things of God and belong to his son who died for you and also share in the worship of idols? How can you be partners here and also stand before a piece of wood and stone and venerate it and worship it? God is faithful to you. The question is, are you faithful to him? This meal we eat symbolizes the profoundly spiritual connection we have with Jesus Christ and with one another. How could you take that reality and mix it with another? Which it turns out, as Paul explains here, is demonic. It's not cute. It's actually sinister. Now, if you aren't yet a Christian, this might sound like a good reason not to be. It sounds like it's going to be trouble. It sounds like an effort. But here's the reason to start on this journey. The God that Christians worship, the God of Jesus Christ, is faithful. He is so faithful to his promises that his son died as a sacrifice for us. God provides like no one else does, and his power and his goodness are real. They are much more real than any other power or goodness on this planet. 
As Australia's greatest poet, Les Murray, not the soccer commentator, there's another Les Murray, he's the poet, and he puts it this way. He says, The true God gives his flesh and blood. Idols demand yours off you. If you are a Christian, the message, if you are a, are a Christian, the message is stark. Have nothing to do with idols. How could you mix sharing in the true God whose son died for you with the worship of pretend gods that actually suck the life out of you? You cannot, says Paul, drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. And don't be fooled. The wrath of God came upon the Israelites when they did just that. As our society becomes more multicultural and more secular, we're going to be asked more and more to participate in idol worship, in idolatry. And sometimes it will be really hard to distinguish what's going on. A couple of years back, I was asked to produce a paper for the Sydney Diocese on yoga and whether Christians can participate in it. And uh, this passage of the Bible was part of the response I made. And as a good researcher does these days, I put it up as a question on Facebook. I said, so should Christians uh, uh, um, should they uh, participate in yoga? Uh, and there was a huge discussion about it, massive discussion with people of very different points of view. There are so many forms of yoga, you see, it's very hard to give one simple answer. Some people were outraged that we were even asking the question. Don't be ridiculous, they said. Yet a woman I know who is from India, who was a Christian, was quite definite for her. She was horrified that Christians would practice yoga because she knows of yoga as an, as an entry, she called it an entry drug to Hindu worship. She said, what you're doing in yoga is actually worshipping other gods. Now, I think that both were right here. There are, there are different types of yoga and not all yoga is worship of another god at all. The important thing is for Christians to ask, as we, almost, we always must, whether any practice we're involved, involved in involves an act of worship of anything other than Christ. Because we are called to worship one God and one Lord. We don't do worship of anything else. Mostly, I understand, yoga does not do that. The point is, though, it's always right for us to be at least asking that question. We can't mix it up. All gods are not the same. All gods are not the same. To be honest, I'm starting to feel uncomfortable at Anzac services these days because they're getting more and more like ancestor worship and a cult of bloody war sacrifice. I'm not there yet, but I'm, still, I'm starting to feel uneasy that there's an active kind of worship going on, an alternative spirituality. As a Christian, I, I feel awkward about that, much as I want to honour those who've served in war. But idolatry is not just religious. The Bible tells us this because... It tells us that greed is idolatry. I mean, greed is not a religious practice, but it turns out it is worship of something that is not God. And so the challenge for us is probably more likely to be, rather than worshipping something that we know as an idol, it's probably to ask ourselves about those secular gods that possess our soul. What about the attraction of the Christless life? What place does money have in your soul? In other words, for example, 
Are you worshipping daily at the temple of your work or your reputation? Are you committed to the pleasures of the flesh and think that you can mix that with sharing in Jesus Christ? This is dangerous and foolish. Do you think it doesn't matter? That kind of behaviour, as Paul is trying to say here, is spiritually deadly. But even when we are faithless, the true God is faithful. So cling to him. That's what Paul was telling the Corinthians. Cling to the true God, the one who is faithful. Even when you find your heart being swayed, follow him because he is not a dumb idol of stone or wood, nor is he a figment of your imagination, but he is the true and living God whose love for you never fails. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.